Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email. We send this out once a week. It's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online. Apart from that, there is a give button. So if you're feeling led, you can do that right online through our website. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube. We are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that God's going to do something special in you through today's message. Enjoy. After the Babylonian exile, there was this small remnant that had returned to Jerusalem. And uh, they had returned, of course, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But like any project, the excitement kind of faded after a little while. And uh, maybe they lost some steam. Maybe they got bored. You know, they figured out kind of what needed to be done. And they stopped building is what happened. This remnant had stopped building. And, And how many of you know that can sometimes happen in life? Not just with building projects, just with life in general. We can just kind of stop working for God. And in fact, last time that we were studying Zechariah, which, by the way, we are continuing our series in the book of Zechariah. We're going to be walking through the book of Zechariah verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Um, I had mentioned last time, if you remember, that that the book of Zechariah actually, um, his message came only two months after the prophet Haggai. And Haggai, if you've read just a short two-chapter book in the Old Testament, minor prophet, um, not because his message isn't important, just because of the length of the book, Haggai begins his word to the people of Israel who had started building the temple but had stopped and started building their own homes. Haggai calls them to get back to building. And we're actually, I thought, you know what, I had mentioned that. It was about two months later that Zechariah shows up. I thought, last week I thought, you know, I'm going to read Haggai again in my morning time just to kind of refresh myself on what's going on here. So I was reading it, and you know what blew me away is that the the actual date that they began working on the temple is given in chapter 1 of Haggai. And I correspond that again with the date that Zechariah started his ministry. It wasn't actually two months later. It was actually 36 days later that Haggai began this message God gave to Haggai, or to Zechariah rather, to say, come on, let's get working on the temple again. Let's get back to work. And it kind of blew me away. I was actually a little bit shocked. Only 36 days. And I kind of, you know what I realized is I'm actually sometimes worse than them. (laughs) Like, I can last a day (laughs) before I get discouraged or, or, you know, I'm done. I figured this one out. I'm going to move on. Right? Sometimes, honestly, I'll be honest with you right now. Sometimes I'll preach a message on a Sunday and, and by Monday the sky is falling. Have a wonderful Sunday and Monday I'm kind of like, uh, you know, I'm never going to, I'm done. that's honestly sometimes how I feel. I don't know if you ever feel that way. You get started, you get going for God, and then within even just a day or two, you're already kind of discouraged and down. Well, this kind of happened with Israel. And so God gave Zechariah eight visions. We already looked at one of the visions last week, right? And these visions were to encourage the people of Israel to get back to building the temple. And what's amazing is these visions were spoken over 2,500, more than 2,500 years ago. God gave these visions to Zechariah. And, and, and you know what? Here we are 2,500 years later. You know, these visions can speak to us still today to encourage us, to, to continue working for the Lord. 
no matter how discouraged you might be, to get up and get going. And in fact, the last time that we were in Zechariah was the first vision that we looked at. And if you remember what the first vision there was, do you remember what the first vision was about? Anybody? Sorry? Myrtle tree. There was myrtle trees. There was someone else mentioned. Horses. Yeah, there was horses and there was these riders. And they'd been sent out to patrol and they reported to the man among the myrtle trees what they had found. They patrolled the earth and they found what? That the world was at peace. There was rest in the world at that moment. And it was God really saying to them, listen, from my vantage point, everything's all good. It's time to get back to work. Start building again. That was kind of the first message that he gave him. We also, if you remember, we, we learned kind of some of the theme or the, the key ideas behind the book of Zechariah just simply laid out for us right away in the, the prophet's name and his descendants. Of course, his name was Zechariah, and he was the son of Berechiah, well done, the son of Edo, the son of Edo, right? And if you remember, do you remember what their names meant? Zechariah means you don't remember? You don't remember? Oh, yes, well done. Okay, so the Lord remembers. And then Berechiah means the Lord will bless. And Edo, at the set time. At the set time. The Lord remembers and the Lord will bless at the set time. And God was basically saying to Israel, like just with the names of these guys, listen, it's time. I remember your plight. I remember where you've come from. I remember you as my people. I want to bless you. And it is time to get to work. That's kind of the the message of the book that's going on. And so this morning, we're actually going to look at the second and the third visions that are found in the book of Zechariah that are encouraged to encourage Israel and really to encourage us to keep going. Why why don't we pray before we look at, uh, we'll finish off chapter one this morning and we'll actually finish all of chapter two as well. Why don't we pray? God, today, um, Lord, you have called us to a great task and a great mission And uh, Lord, I know that um, there are some people in this room that are fantastic at just seeing it and putting their hands to it and getting it done. And there's other of us in this room that see a need and we kind of get started and we get bored. There's others that just put it off for whatever reason and procrastinate and deal, I'll deal with it later. Uh, Lord, ultimately you call us to a job. You call us to a work. You call us to, to go, to love, to love others as you've loved us, to go, to make disciples and Lord, to ultimately build your kingdom, not our kingdom. And I pray this morning, Jesus, for those of us in this room that maybe have lost hope or or lost sight of what you've called us to do, Lord. Maybe we've become discouraged. I don't know. Lord, I ask that you would speak to us through these visions this morning. Visions that were shown to a prophet years and years ago, over 2,500 years ago, but still speak to us, are still relevant here and now today. Lord, help us to keep going, to keep working for you. I believe that this is the set time. Now is the time. Bless your word, bless this teaching, and give us hearts to receive and apply all that you teach us. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, um, the first thing that we're going to look at, I've got three kind of components that we've broken it up into this morning. The first thing we're going to see is a painful past. A painful past and what God can do with it. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Zechariah. If you don't have a Bible, you need a Bible, all right, to follow along. It's going to help you an awful lot. So whether it's on your phone or uh, if you don't have one on your phone, you want to use one, there's in the seats all around you, you will find Bibles. And so grab a Bible and turn to the book of Zechariah. The easiest way to find it is go to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, which is kind of two-thirds through the, the Bible, and then go backwards. You'll hit Matthew and go backwards. You'll hit Malachi, and then you'll hit the book of Zechariah. So Zechariah chapter 1, we're going to pick up where we left off. We're going to start at verse 18 this morning of chapter 1 of Zechariah. It says this, And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. 
And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Now, what do you think or what do you picture when you think of horns? What comes to mind? Any, any ideas? A what? A bull? Yeah, okay, we actually have some pictures here. Maybe something like this image comes to mind. Joby, you got, there we go. So something like that, right? So you, you got horns, right? I, I think when I think of a horn, I, this next picture we have here, this is what I think of, right? That's a nasty horn. You know what the horns mean and display? Don't mess with me, right? That's kind of what they communicate, right? A, a horn, these horns are not just for decoration, right? They, they, you know what the business end is of that animal. <laughs> Don't mess with that. And in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the horn was a symbol or, or, or a picture of power and strength, that's what it represented. If you, if you read all through the Old Testament, many times it'll talk about uh, the horn, lifting up the horn. It's, it's talking about power and strength, a symbol of that. It also oftentimes in the Old Testament, Testament represented nations, as it does here. Four nations were told about that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem, represented by four horns. So who are these four nations? Don't you want to know, right? Maybe you don't care. Well, anyway, Scripture isn't actually totally clear on who it is. But every commentary loves to tell you who they think it is. Um, and it's very possible that some commentaries think that it's a Egypt and Assyria, um, Babylon and Medo-Persia that scattered Israel. Um, others say that it actually more so, and I think this probably lines more closely with it, uh, relates to Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2, talking about these four kingdoms that would basically rule the world uh, up until when Christ comes. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Uh, it's, I don't think totally important, actually, that we know what these actual nations are. I think Scripture probably would have made it a little more clear if God really wanted us to know. I think what's important is that God is pointing something out here. He's saying, listen, Israel, I recognize your painful past. I recognize the suffering. You were scattered by these powerful nations. And, and I recognize that it's because of your sin, your disobedience, right, that they were disciplined by these other nations, but they were scattered. You kind of got to wonder, like, well, why is God bringing this up, right? Is he just kind of trying to point it out that, hey, these are the guys that kicked your butt? It's like, well, thanks. I uh, didn't need to be reminded of that one. But, but why is he bringing it up? Well, look at verse 20. It says, then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. Other translations say blacksmiths or carpenters. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. Speaking of those four horns. And you notice here that, that no one even raised his head. It speaks about the utter humiliation they couldn't even raise their heads. They were so defeated, so down in their scattering that happened, right, when they were carried off into exile, humiliated, suffering. And so he recognizes that, but he says, those are those four horns. But then he says this, and these, the four craftsmen or the four blacksmiths, have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. In other words, what God is saying is this, God's saying, I'm going to deal with those nations that caused my people to suffer. That's what God is pointing out here. These four craftsmen or blacksmiths, what would they do? They would cut off the horns of these nations. And of course, the horn we already mentioned was a symbol of power or authority or strength. Now, now I don't want to come face to face with this guy. How many of you would want to face this rhino? Right? I would, I would serve, but you know what? You cut off his horn and what do you get? You get this. Yeah, I mean, hey, how many of you are like, oh, I'd like to meet him. Now, you go back to the last picture. Go back, maybe, Joby. I, know, you know, I don't want to meet him, but this next picture, I'd gladly meet this little guy. Yeah, see, I mean, you, know, you, you could cuddle up with him, it almost seems, right? And that's kind of the idea here, is that, 
that for an animal or for a nation to lose its horn, it was a catastrophic loss. That's what's kind of being communicated, right? They were left very vulnerable. And you think of any of these, these possible nations, we don't know for sure what those four nations were, but that were represented by the four horns, you would think that those nations would last forever, these superpowers in the world. Think of Assyria. Assyria was the superpower that lasted for 300 years, which you might think was a long time, but that's nothing, actually. That's really nothing for it. Think of how long nations can last nowadays. 300 years, and never thought that Assyria would fall. Well, you know what? A, a, a nation came along and chopped off the horn of Assyria, and who was that? The next one that came along was Babylon. Babylon came and chopped off Assyria's horn and became the next ruling superpower. But they didn't last 300 years. Guess how long Babylon lasts? Less than 100. Less than 100 years. Again, another nation that you'd think would never be taken over, but the Medo-Persian Empire rose up and cut off the horn after only less than 100 years, cut off the horn of Babylon. And And then who rose up after that was Greece. Greece comes along and chops off the horn after only about 200 years. So you can see that God's saying, listen, This vision that God is giving is showing Israel and showing us that God is in control. That's what he's saying. Over all the players in the political world stage, he was then and he is today. God is in control. In other words, what God, the second vision is showing us is that Russia or China or South Korea or Islam, doesn't matter what it is, does not determine how this world will go. We need to understand this. God determines what's going to happen in this world. God still rules and overrules everything for his purposes in human history. So for Israel, the vision of the four horns and the four craftsmen, it really showed them that God saw their pain, God saw their problems, and that God would intervene. Isn't that beautiful? God doesn't just see us in our pit and in our pain, but God says, I'm going to do something about it too. That's what he was saying. He's going to intervene. Those that set themselves up as enemies of God's people will soon find themselves as enemies of God himself. That's what's going to happen. They'll be judged, no matter how big or powerful or invincible they may seem. God is in charge. You don't need to fear to do his work. That's what he's trying to communicate. Listen, get back to building the temple. It's going to be okay. You know, it's kind of like Romans 8.31 reminds us, if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? It's kind of like the New Testament version of what God's communicating here. He's saying this, you know what, if God can take and buzz off the horn of Assyria or, or Babylon or Medo-Persia, then he can take care of our boss at work. He can. He can take care of that, that problem kid that's at school or the slander that's coming against us, whatever our problem may be, whatever giant we might be facing. Because ultimately, here's the thing, God wants to, he wants to take our, our pain, our painful past, our problems, and you know what? He wants, to, he wants to turn it into, here, I've got some more peas for you, if you're wondering. It's, this is a Sunday brought to you by peas, by the way. Not the, the vegetable, but the letter P. So, um, so, so he wants to turn your painful past into a powerful proclamation. That's what God wants to do. God wants to, to, to use your life and your past even to show that God rules, that God restores, that God forgives, that God loves, that God cares, that he renews. And that is what these four horns and four craftsmen told Israel. And that's what it tells us too. So keep going, get going, get going. And secondly, in fact, though you may have a painful past, God still has promised plans. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and what is its length. So this is the third vision now of Zechariah. 
And this is God giving them their building plans. He's like, hey, you know, we got a building project, and so what do you, what do you got to do? The first part of a building project, you got to figure out what you're building. <laughs> that, that means you got to measure up, you've got to get some blueprints in place, you got to figure out what it is you're going to be constructing. And so remember, these, these are this remnant, these Jews that had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city. This would be encouraging already. Hey, we're going to have some plans here. We're going we're to have some things to build from. That's what's being communicated. It would be encouraging, but keep in mind, this is just something to think about, that there was only 42,000 Israelites that had returned to Jerusalem. Only 42,000. And so we read now in verse 3, And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him, and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls, because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. So this is a little bit of a strange thing that's going on here. Measure everything up. And then this other messenger comes and says, well, wait, tell that guy that in a sense, there's no point measuring because Jerusalem's going to be so big it can't be measured. That's what's being communicated here. In fact, people are going to be spilling out of the city. And you've got to think of this. In Zechariah's time, this is like, what? There's 42,000 of us. That's it. What do you, how, this makes no sense. It's almost like us meeting in like a 5,000-seat auditorium and we're like 150 or 200 people, and, and someone comes in, and they're like, oh, sorry to disturb your service, but i got to measure up, make sure there's going to be enough room. And we're doing just fine, I think, actually. <laughs> no, 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 you're going to be spilling outside. Of, really? What? Right? That's kind of what God's communicating right now to, to, to these Israelites that have returned. God says, take measurements for the expansion. He says, because there's going to be so many people, it's going to spill beyond the city, beyond the walls, which actually wasn't really good in ancient times, if you know this. You needed a wall in ancient times. You know, the walls of Jericho. It was an undefeatable city because of how big and thick their walls were until God came along, right? Walls, you need walls. And so a city without walls was, was open to attack. It was not a safe place to live in. And so this word, this vision is supposed to be encouraging these Israelites. But meanwhile, it kind of goes, but there's also going to be no walls. What? This is horrible. Well, God continues, verse 5. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. Now, I can't think of a better wall than that, right? You can have a wall of stone. You can have a wall of brick. You can even make a wall out of wood. Or God's saying here, or you can have a wall of fire. Anybody want a wall of fire? I mean, that's the wall I would pick. If I could have any wall to stop people from getting in, I want a big wall of fire to surround me. Right? And that's what God says. He says basically that his very presence in their midst would ensure the safety of Jerusalem. He'll be like a wall of fire around them. You know, this, of course, is, it's, it's going to have a very short-term or partial fulfillment in the days of Nehemiah, in the days of Zechariah. They did rebuild the, the city and the walls and the temple. It was rebuilt and to a degree was safe, to a degree. Uh, the, the temple, you know, the glory would return because God speaks about his glory coming and being this wall of fire. So yes, it would happen to a degree, but ultimately this is going to be fulfilled when Christ returns at his second coming. This is when the actual fulfillment will take place at the millennial reign of Christ. God's going to rebuild Jerusalem and protect his people. Some of you maybe were with us uh, almost a year ago now. We, um, we did a sermon called What's Next? It was right between the book of Exodus and the book of Hebrews. And if you remember when we did this sermon, it was only a one sermon, just a, a one-off that I did we talked about kind of what was going on in Russia and Ukraine at the time. Did you remember that? And we talked specifically 
about how it relates to the end times, and we talked about how um, Ezekiel 38 and 39 speaks about this ruler. Anyone know the ruler, ruler's name? Gog, yeah. Gog is the ruler, and he's a leader from the north, and so many people believe that that's Russia. If you go directly north of Israel, you hit Moscow, and so many people believe that that in the scriptures is speaking about um, a Russian leader, Gog, and Magog is his army, his, his hordes that he gathers together to come against Israel, to fight against Jerusalem. And it's interesting because in that passage in, in Ezekiel 38, it speaks about that one of the reasons that they will come and attack is they'll see that, that Israel is without walls. Isn't that interesting? Just like God says here, you'll be without walls. You'll be without walls. You'll have so many people who'll be so prosperous, overflowing. And this, this leader leads these others to come and attack Israel. Um, but if you know, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, it speaks that they'll come and attack, but what'll happen? God himself will protect. It'll be a miraculous delivery. It'll be like a wall of fire around. And this is what, so you can see, you can actually see that today this vision is actually, if we look at what's going on right now in Jerusalem, this vision is beginning to be fulfilled. Do you, does anybody here know what the national bird of, of Israel is? Anybody? Nobody knows what the national bird of Israel is? I can't believe it. It's not the dove, it's the crane. In fact, I have, I have pictures of some of them here for you this morning. That's not the actual national bird of Israel, by the way, in case you're wondering. Don't quote me on that one. I looked it up because I was like, what is the national bird of Israel? Um, I can't remember the name. I was practicing at home and I kept saying bad words like cuckoo and weird, and I was like, what? No, I can't say this. So, um, so I don't know where I remember, because it was a funny name. It was like, I, it was like pee-pee, but it wasn't pee-pee. But I was like, I'm not, I, anyway, I said it. I shouldn't have. Um, anyway, I've actually heard people say that this has become like the national bird of Israel. You can change the, you can go back now to the next slide there, Joby. Um, th- that uh, th- there are so many cranes in Israel. People joke about that. It's become the national bird because there, are, there is so much building going on in Israel right now, in Jerusalem. It's overflowing with people on such a scale that they can't keep up with the construction. There's cranes everywhere building. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's literally overflowing to be a city without walls, just like Ezekiel 38 speaks about as well. You know, Jews from New York and from Russia, from Ukraine, all over the world are returning in droves right now to Israel, like just flocking back to Israel. It's unreal. Not since May 1948 when it became a nation again. And it's just exploding in these last number of years. I believe it's setting up for Jesus' second coming, as Scripture speaks about. Uh, And which actually Zechariah is going to talk a little bit more about in the book when Christ returns to this place. But I just want to say this. You know what? Maybe, Maybe you have had a painful past. Maybe you have a painful present. It's not in the past. You're still living it right now. You know what? God still has promised plans for you, just like he did for this nation that had, they had just gone through the worst 70 years of their history, being kicked out of the land. And you know what I love? I, I love, God still has a promised plan because I love this well-known passage from Jeremiah 29 11. You guys know this passage. It's, it's, it's quoted everywhere. It's probably on some of your fridges at home, right? For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. You know why I love that verse so much? Because it was written right in the middle, right during the time of Israel being in exile. Because of their sin, because of their disobedience, 
Jeremiah wrote that while they are in exile. And what does God say while you're in your pain and in your suffering? Sometimes because of your own doing, because of your own disobedience, God says, I still have plans for your life. I love that passage just for that fact alone. God still has plans. He's got plans for your life, regardless of what your past has looked like, how painful it may have been. The Lord wants to be, as he says here, the glory in your midst. He wants to be like a wall of fire around you. In fact, because of this promise of God's plan accompanied by his presence and his protection, third and finally, we see a powerful plea to the exiles to return. Look at verse 6 of chapter 2. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. So who is he speaking to here? This isn't actually, he's not writing right now. He's not speaking actually to those 42,000 remnant that had returned to Jerusalem. Now he's talking to those that were still in Babylon, that were still living in exile. He's actually saying, hey, it's Edo time. What's Edo time? The set time. It's time to come back. That's what he's saying. Now is the time. Come back. Come back to Jerusalem. You know, there was about two to three million Jews that went into exile in Babylon. About two to three million and under King Cyrus's decree, they were all free to return to Jerusalem. And how many returned of the two to three million? 42,000. That's not very many, right? That's hardly any. Two to three million, and only 42,000 returned. You know, God is at this point saying it's time to come back. It's time to come back, come back, return. It's interesting, Josephus, who is the Jewish historian, he reports that, that, that many Jews didn't want to leave Babylon. They actually didn't want to leave Babylon because of the, the wealth that they had amassed and their, new, their very comfortable lives that they had begun to live in Babylon, in exile. That this is, and so, so you think about it. They went into Babylon as slaves. That's how they went into Babylon, as slaves, into exile as slaves. But you know what? Being God's people, what happens? They're blessed. You look still today, you look at Jews around the world, a blessed people. No matter, it seems like wherever they go, God blesses them. And so the Jews go into exile in Babylon and they began to amass great wealth, open businesses, began to live and settle down, which they were supposed to do. In fact, they were told to do that. Prophet Jeremiah said to do that. You got 70 years here, so settle in, get used to it, do your 70 years. But the 70 years were over. But now, because of all that they had, they had amassed and the wealth and the comfort, they're kind of going, well, I don't really want to go back to Jerusalem now. It's in ruins. Why would I want to go back to, why do I want to go back to work when I've got all of this here in Babylon? They'd become so comfortable with life in Babylon. Well, God would tell them why, and he begins in verse 8, and in the following verses, he'll tell them why. It says, for thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. So something interesting is happening here. There's a plea to return. God's pleading with Israel, come back to Jerusalem. Let's go. Let's get on with this. He already mentioned, because I'm going to protect you. I'll be this wall of fire, which he had promised. But he makes it extra special here, the protection that he promises. How does he refer to Israel? What did it just say there? The apple of his eye. Literally, it says the pupil of his eye. The apple of his eye. Now, how many of you enjoy your eyes? Right? We all like our eyes. In fact, we protect our eyes at all costs, do we not? 
probably more than anything else on our body. If our eyes are going to get damaged, we cover. We're very careful with our eyes. And, And this is speaking of how precious you know, our eyes are to us is how precious God's, you know, in a sense, eyes would be to him. He's saying the same, listen, he's like, Israel, you are precious to me. You're like the apple of my eye. You, you, you are so precious to me, which is, again, such a wonderful word because they had just messed up really bad, hadn't they? They had just spent 70 years in captivity because of their sin and their disobedience. And God says, what? You're still the apple of my eye. This is how he regards them, and this is how he also will protect them. Which is beautiful because maybe you've messed up. Anybody here ever messed up, made a mistake? There's five of us. Okay, and there's a heavy sixth in the back. Right? You know what? Even after we mess up, this is beautiful. Put it in context. Israel has been major mess ups. And God says, you are the apple of my eye. I'm going to protect you and I'm going to treat you with such a precious love and care. And you know, maybe the devil has been whispering to you that God doesn't care about you. Maybe, maybe the devil's been whispering to you that, that he's, he's put you and your plans on the back burner because of whatever it was that you did. That's a lie. That is a lie, lie, lie. That is not the truth. He calls you the apple of his eye. He loves and he cares and he wants to protect you. And think about it this way. He's communicating this. If someone pokes you in the eye, well, maybe not you, but if someone pokes God in the eye, do you know what he's going to do? He's going to poke him back. That's right. He's going to do more than poke them back, we're going to see. Look at verse 9. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know the Lord of hosts has sent me. You see, God pleads with the exiles to return. He says, come back, because he promises to bless. He promises to protect. But ultimately, he also says this. You need to return because the day is coming when judgment's going to be poured out upon Babylon. You need to get out of there, is kind of what he's saying here. Leave. You see, Babylon was a wicked, wicked nation. And, and he says this, just as Babylon had plundered all these other nations, God says, I'm going to just shake my hand, or I'm going to poke them in the eye, knock them down, and all these other nations are going to come and plunder them. And that's what he begins to communicate to them. You need to return. In fact, he even warns them. Uh, if you notice in verse 7, if you have Bibles open, look at what verse, the start of verse 7. What does it say? Up. Escape to Zion. Notice that. Up. He's like, get up. Get out of here. Escape. The word escape communicates this. You still have time. Get out while you can. That's what he's kind of saying here. And you know what? God gives us a similar plea, I believe. Don't grow so comfortable in this world that you're living in, that you don't want to leave it. You know, in many ways, the scriptures refers to this world as our own Babylon in a sense. This is like a Babylon that we're living in. And it can be easy, I know, to get consumed with our work and with our life on this earth, and forget about God's work, kind of like the exiles had done. But we got to remember that investing in this world, there's wisdom in that, but it doesn't last, does it? What did Jesus say? You know what? Don't store up treasures here on earth, because what happens to them? Moth come and eat it up and rust, right? Thieves come in and steal. So what does he say to do instead? Store up treasures in heaven. Build the Lord's kingdom. That's what he says. Build my kingdom, not your kingdom. Investing in this world won't last. And so he warned them. He says, don't miss Jerusalem. Don't miss God's plan for your life because of materialism or because of comfort that you found in Babylon. And so he pleads to return because he promises to protect. He he promises as well that there is judgment coming, so get out while you can. But more importantly, look at verse 10. He then says this, 
But this is why you should return. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come. I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. You know, the greatest reason to return is the promise of God's presence with you. This should make God's people sing and rejoice, as he says here, that we have Emmanuel, God with us. I mean, even now he promises to dwell with us, to dwell in our midst, to be with us, to be present with us. And you know what? There's nothing greater. I shared this after coming back from my sabbatical. That as I visited those different churches, the, the, the thing that separated those churches, there was flashy churches and there was super homegrown churches. And, and the thing that separated them and made them whether I'd want to attend that church or not, whether it was a homegrown church or whether it was a flashy church, was just whether I experienced the presence of God. This is what we need. This is more than anything what we need. This is what should make us sing and rejoice is when we meet with God, when his presence comes and dwells amongst us. There's nothing more than we need. And we know this. When, when you've experienced his presence, it's, it's hard because when you experience God's presence, it's, it's horrible, actually. I don't know how else to put it. But nothing else does satisfy. Do you know what I mean? Everything else just becomes a fake. And you're like, I want what I had. And you know what? He, he actually tells us in the scripture to taste and see that the Lord is good, doesn't he? He kind of, he's like, let's do a taste test. You can try the world or you can try me. And I think he asks us to taste and see because the reality is this. When you get a taste of God, you'll get addicted. It's the truth. When you've experienced God's presence, you realize there's nothing more that I need in this life. God's presence is more than enough. And, and the reality is this, is that Israel's job was, was to introduce the nations to God's presence. That's what he called them to do. Look at verse 11. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people and I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Now, obviously, again, you know, at the, at the, the first coming of Christ as Emmanuel, as God with us, when Jesus came to this earth, this would be the, the initial fulfillment of this promise. But again, that we're going to see a complete fulfillment. You just read the book of Revelation 20, 21 right? Chapter, like, speaks about his presence dwelling with us. He'll be the light. We won't need a sun anymore because he will be the light. The glory of God himself will light the city it talks about. Revelation, beautiful, beautiful passage. So that is still going to come, yet to come. The millennial reign of Christ. Zechariah is going to even allude to that a little bit further in some of these other visions. But the reality is this, is that God's, God's heart of blessing for the nation of Israel was never, it was never intended to stop with Israel. It wasn't intended that Israel would get all these blessings from God and be like, whoa, another blessing, and shoved in their pocket. And man, you know, their pockets are overflowing, their coats are, oh my, I gotta stick more, and they got all these bags full of, it's like God's blessings. That's not the idea that God, God didn't, I want you not, not to be just a hoarder of my blessing, I want you to be a vessel of my blessing. That's what God wanted Israel to be, that all the nations would be blessed through them. They would be a channel of blessing for many nations. You know, his heart obviously is the same for us right? That, that he, we would be a channel of his blessing to others. And he goes on in verse 12, and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. How, how many, um, how do you, when you think of the, the place Israel, what is it often referred to as? Holy Land. And did you notice what the passage here just mentioned it called? Holy Land. You think about Holy Land tours and all these things, right? Do you know that this is the only time in the Old Testament that, that the land is actually referred to as the Holy Land? 
It's the only time we see it, yet we refer to it all the time as the Holy Land. But you know what? This does tell us something. It is a holy land. In other words, it is set apart. It is precious to God, right? It's special to him, the land itself, you know, and I just want to mention this. God is not done with the land of Israel. God's not done with the land of Israel, and he's not done with the people of Israel either. Uh, Romans chapter 11, read Romans 9, 10, 11, incredible passages all about God's plans for Israel still, but, but look at, especially verse 28, just for time's sake, says that many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news. What's the good news? The gospel, the, the, the news that Jesus has come and died for our sins. Why are they enemies of the gospel? Well, they don't believe Jesus was the Messiah. And so this is what Paul's saying. Many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news, the gospel of Jesus. And this benefits you Gentiles. How does it benefit us? Well, we are living in what right now is known as the church age or the age of grace where God is pouring his grace out upon the earth, upon the nations, and we are benefited as Gentiles of receiving the Messiah. But what does Paul go on to say? Yet they are still the people he loves because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, like listen, there are so many scriptures that speak about this. God is not done with the land and God is not done with the people. He's not done. Just even look at Jerusalem today and what he's doing. It, just like this passage said, God will again choose Jerusalem. You can see it's all setting up for Christ's return. So we finish off here in verse 13. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. He just wraps it up basically by saying, well, this is how you need to respond. If this is the God that, that, that truly is in the world, if this is the King of Kings, this is how you respond. Submit yourselves to him. Surrender to him. Surrender your life to Jesus. You know, the, the reality is that right now, God won't force you. You have a choice to submit your life to Jesus or not, to surrender your life to him or not. Right now, we have a choice. But the day is coming, Philippians 2 speaks about it, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.